Well, good morning. If you're new or, or a guest with us, my name is Dave, and it's really great to have you here today. Um, you know, there, there are different sorts of sighs. Um, you know what I mean, right? There's, you know, a, a sigh is our, our body's sort of physiological or outward response to the deep things that are going on in our souls. Kind of those deep inner life comes to the outer part of us. Um, and, and there are different kinds of sighs. You know, the brokenhearted, those who maybe were longing for love with that person, but it doesn't work out, they know a certain kind of heartbroken sigh. And the grieving, they, they know another kind of sigh as well. Like, can it really be true? Is this for real? It can't be sigh, but it is. There's also the sigh of relief. Um, and this happens in a few different modes. I think of, you know, that parent who, who looks up just for a second and they're at the beach and their daughter is gone. And they begin to scan the water frantically, this heart in panic, looking for that little one. And they're, are they drowning? You don't know. And then, oh, actually, they're still there building the sandcastle on the shore. They're just kind of blocked from view by that guy with that blow-up killer whale. <sighs> sigh of relief. And there's a sigh of kind of joyful release as well. It's that handing in your final paper this semester and being like, oh, well, that's not the worst thing I've ever written. Sigh of relief. Or that big project you got into your boss. Or maybe it's getting word back from the doctor and they say it's treatable. Sigh of relief. And there's a sort of sigh that is is accompanied with quickly, maybe afterward, with thank you, God. It's just this joyful response. Um, you know, I, sometimes I, I often read at least part of the text I'm preaching on in the Greek New Testament. And I have to be honest, when I open it up, it just looks like seaweed on the page at first. And I go, oh, wow. And I kind of have to shake my head a few times and the bleary-eyed stare um, it just takes me a few minutes to kind of reconfigure those words and get my head into the language game again. But this almost always happens when I read in the Greek New Testament, and it did this week in a powerful way, is that it slows me down, and certain language or like sort of word groups or key themes seem to pop out in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise if I was just reading it quickly. And as I read this story of Mary and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 this week, at my slow motion, trying to work it out sort of pace, I would describe what happens as a cosmic level sigh of relief. I say cosmic level because it's not lost on Mary and Elizabeth, the main characters in the part we'll look at today. It's not lost on them, the significance of the moment that they've found themselves graciously in the midst of. You know, waiting is hard. Waiting for anything is hard. We hate waiting today. You know, your internet does this thing where it does that a few times, and we're mad. I mean, we hate waiting. Um, the people of Israel, uh, these are God's chosen people for a task. God chose these people for a task, and they are there in this sense of waiting prior to the coming of Jesus, and they've been waiting a long time. They have this expectation, and that's what Advent means, really. It's this expectancy that God is going to do something, is finally going to act. So they're expecting God to do what God has promised. And God's people, they know the promises of their scriptures. The Hebrew Bible, we often call it the Old Testament, is a story in search of an ending. This story has no resolution. It's looking at the horizon and asking the question, when, Lord? 
When will it happen? When will the ruler, the rescuer come? Here's what we read in the prophet Micah. It's a promise that's given to the town of Bethlehem. Listen to it. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And that's kind of weird. Like, just think about that. So there's going to be this person that comes out of this town, born, supposedly, but their origin is from, like, eternity past. I think this kind of hints at maybe a little bit how God the Son is God the Son who comes. But that's a story for, well, maybe for a couple days from now. Let me keep reading. Verse 4 says this, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord, of the name of the Lord his God. So there is a coming one, a king who is also a shepherd, who's going to care for his people deeply, and they are searching the horizon for this coming one. But not only that, we read in the book of Isaiah that there would, there would come this person prior to the coming of the coming one who would begin to prepare the way, to ready things. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make a straight path for him. So for the faith-filled in Israel at that time, they were scanning the horizon. They were waiting and preparing for the coming one. And they had a question like, when, when God? When will you act They had the heavy hand of Romans oppressing and weighing on them. God, have you forgotten us? That was likely a question that came through their minds often enough. And maybe, maybe in this season, it's coming through your mind as well in some ways. They are expectant. But what seems to be unfolding here is also messing with their expectations too. We heard just a couple weeks ago in our reading, well, we saw the reality that Mary, this young woman, engaged to Joseph. I mean, she was expecting to be married soon, but she gets this visit from an angelic messenger and the word that she hears would overturn her personal expectations. For she would now be expecting, like as a mom, in the most unexpected, well, actually impossible sort of way. This would happen as a complete work of God. No human intervention. She's a virgin, and she becomes pregnant. No one else involved. That, talk about unexpected. Her response to this word is like, okay, I will trust the God of the unexpected. I am the Lord's servant, she says. And then she utters this profound uh, word of abandon to God. She says, may your word to me be fulfilled. There's this stepping out in trust that we see in this text that, that Mary beautifully portrays what the faithful look like. And so that's a challenge that comes to us. And I just want us to pause over this for a second. If I were to ask you this morning, just to finish this phrase, do it in your mind, do it honestly. Here's the phrase. How do you finish this one? I am blank. What comes next for you? What comes to your mind as you finish that? I am Is it what Mary says? Is it something like that? Is it, I am the Lord's servant? Mary becomes and models for us faithfulness to life under God's gracious rule. In the uncertainty, in those, you know, well, this sounds pretty out there, God, but I will trust you. She she pictures that for us. And more than that, more than the answer to the uh, I am question, I am the Lord's servant, 
there is a willingness to give her yes to whatever God is drawing her into, however scary it might seem. And the question that comes to us again is, are you, are we open-handed to whatever God would have for your life, whatever he's calling you into? Mary gives us a picture of the yes of faith. We're going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 39. Let's just pause and pray as we begin that. Father, I thank you for the unexpectedness of how you sent your son Jesus to come. And we pray, Lord, now as we open this text, as we quiet our hearts, that we would hear a lot more than my voice, that we would hear your voice through this text. and We would hear what you're calling us into as a people, both, both personally and corporately, God. We want to we want to hear what you're calling us into and uh, be encouraged by it. So, Lord, speak to us through this text. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. It begins like this. At that time, and that time is what? Well, this goes, Luke goes directly from Mary's meeting with the angel. She says, may it be to me as, as you've said. At that time, straight away, there seems to be no kind of gap here. She goes, that's what the angel said, I need to. Well, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried toward a town in the hill country of Judea. Where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now we learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier on in this chapter. Um, They are promised... In their old age, and as we find out in in Elizabeth's barrenness, they're promised to have a baby boy. And that story probably makes our minds go back to, well, Abraham and Sarah. At the beginning of God's plan, we see kind of a recapitulation or rehashing of that same story in a little bit of a different way. But should make us think of that story, of a story of faith, of saying, yes, God, may it be to us as well. So they're promised this baby boy in their old age, a miraculous birth. But when Zechariah first hears this word, he goes, no, 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 that sounds too good. That sounds too good to believe. And the angel rebukes him for that and strikes him dumb. He's not able to speak until John is born. Just notice the contrast with Zechariah and someone else in our story as we read today. So we need to know Elizabeth is carrying now this miraculous little boy as well. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, this is a fascinating interaction, a fascinating text for a few reasons. First, um, like notice the emphasis on greeting. Three times we hear Mary say, uh, or we hear that Mary greeted Elizabeth. Like Luke, how many times do you have to use that word greeting in such a small text? That was one of those word groups that stood out to me this week. This repetition tells us that Luke is trying to do something here that we need to pay attention to. And notice that the the emphasis is on the response 
of Elizabeth's child to Mary's greeting. We read that the baby leapt in her womb, and then we hear from Elizabeth's own words. She says, recounting the same information, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So what's going on here? Well, this is a fulfillment of the promise that was made to Zechariah by the angel. The angel said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Now, just to fast forward a little bit, um, after John's birth, Zechariah is miraculously giving his speech back. And we read that he then is filled with the Spirit and he begins to prophesy. He's holding this little baby boy and looking at him, he says something like this, and you, my child... He's speaking right to John. I think that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To hold a baby and just speak to this child in this prophetic way. He says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah's skepticism seems to be swallowed up by God's faithfulness, and it gets overwhelmed by joy. And we hear that the spirit-filled baby leaps for joy, as Elizabeth puts it, in her womb. Joy. That's one of those uh, themes or word groups that Luke is repeating throughout this birth narrative. There's this, like I said, this cosmic sigh of relief, of a, a yes, God, that's full of joy. And then we read that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and makes this incredible prophetic utterance. You say, prophetic? Well, yeah. Like, who told her about Mary's pregnancy? Or who the baby was that's in her womb? She has this profound, God-given insight in that moment into the identity of Jesus. Listen to it again, verse 43. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She could look at this teenage girl, uh, just newly come to say hi to her and say, the mother of my Lord is here in my presence. My goodness, what is going on? She has this incredible insight. You see, God is revealing God's plan in a supernatural way. It's, it's beautiful. It's unexpected. Think of it. Here's how one scholar says it. He says, God's purposes and plans are first revealed in a private meeting between two women on the edge of society. It's a beautiful picture of how God works. But the reality that God will speak and work powerfully through women on the edge of society, it's actually preparing us to see what's going to happen throughout the rest of this gospel and into part two of Luke's story, which is the book of Acts. You see, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the church is gathered and God powerfully pours out his spirit on his church, empowers them with the filling of the spirit, and then Peter begins to interpret for those who are around looking in on the church. He interprets what's happening using the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, he quotes it saying this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So this prophetic word through Elizabeth is a hint at what's to come. For all of God's people, you cannot live the Jesus life, the life of following Jesus, unless you have the power of God within you. You just can't. He's called us to things that are beyond our own ability. So the life of following Jesus is one that will need to be empowered and drenched in the life of God within us, the Holy Spirit. 
And we're prepared for that inbreaking of the last days through this text. See, what God promised through the prophet Joel is now arriving in this scene. The kingdom is arriving through the coming of Jesus. And it is kind of bizarre. That, I mean, the long-awaited plan of God is being revealed between these two women on the margins of society, and it's bizarre and beautiful, but I love how God works. That at the climax of the human history, God's unfolding plan happens in this way. And that should give us pause. And, and we're going to pause now and think about what that means for us. It should give us pause to think about how God might actually be at work around us right now in unexpected ways too. Like, are we open to God's work in unexpected places or through unexpected people? Um, while I was in seminary in Hamilton, my wife and I were there, I, I, I volunteered with an organization called L'Arche, uh, which is a community of people with significant physical or mental challenges. And the staff and volunteers, they come around and alongside of those who are living in this L'Arche community. And I can remember feeling totally confused on my first day of the placement. See, I'm, I'm a... You know, I'm sitting there with my large supervisor, and she's giving my, me my assignment for the whole year. She says, your job is to learn from the core member, your buddy that you'll be paired with for the year, to learn about God and about his work and his love. And I'm going, sorry, what? I don't think I understand. She says, your job is to be a learner, a listener, to listen for how God is wanting to shape you for what your buddy is saying. Now, I'm a first-year seminary student. My head is full of, like, really great information. I'm trying to gear up to be a teacher, and I'm told not to do that, like, at all, that God has something to teach me through listening to this community. And boy, did I ever learn. Uh, It turns out that this year with my buddy Kevin brought some of the most profound aha moments in my entire life. Uh, They've continued to shape my ministry to this very day. Um, And I would have missed it all if I was only expecting to God, to sh- God to show up in, in particular ways, if I wasn't maybe open to God speaking to me, revealing how he works in maybe unexpected ways. So I had my expectations messed with, and I'm so glad I did. Of course, we most clearly hear God's voice through the Spirit-inspired scriptures. That's the guide and the basis for how we discern all of our nudges from God. But God is certainly speaking. He is challenging us. He's getting our attention, revealing our shortcomings in all sorts of ways, and maybe ones that we're not really expecting at all. Like parents, are are you listening to what God is saying through your kids? Um, Are you seeing how God is maybe showing you what it looks like to really depend on him through the way that your children are? Remember, Jesus, quite unexpectedly, he points to a group of children running around uh, and playing, and he points to the children as a picture of faith and says, unless you become like them, you don't even have a place in the kingdom of God. What? This was a, a very challenging word for those to be hearing in that setting. Jesus is laying down this idea that unless you become dependent, unless you become like a little child, um, you, just, you just don't know who you are before God. Or maybe it's through holding the hand of a friend in hospital that we realize that whatever we, you know, whatever we often think of as strength or courage, boy, it's just, it's actually just an illusion. As if we're actually in control of anything. 
as if every single breath we have isn't just a gift of sheer grace from God our creator. No, strength isn't being fiercely independent. It's not self-sufficiency. It's not the sort of I don't need anything from anyone sort of posture. So perhaps we even need to kind of recast that language of strength entirely. It's often in those moments when we're sick or at the end of our rope that bring us in touch with that reality that everything we have is totally and utterly dependent on God in the first place. It's here we begin to hear from God as Paul did in his own suffering. Paul was praying that God would take away this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was exactly, but he wants it gone. And three times he asked and three times he heard this answer, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's not the word that Paul was expecting or actually what he wanted. He wanted to hear, okay, Paul, I'll heal you. God says this is better and he means it. Like, what if that was true, though? Like, what if God wants to work through our suffering? What if the most important thing that you can offer at times is actually your weakness? What if it's true that God's power is most clearly evident in the places that we're weak, where we're dependent on him? I saw this when I was sitting uh, next to uh, Dave Sandins, one of the doctors from our church here. Well, he was in hospital this fall facing a serious serious health issue. I can remember just sitting on the bed next to Dave and I was listening to him talk about how important this moment was for him. How God was trying to speak to him through this time of weakness. I was deeply moved by his faith and his openness to see this time of waiting as an opening for God to show up. Dave's faith in that state of weakness was a gift to me. It reminded me to keep trusting God in the uncertainties that I was facing as well, to be open to be open to God in the waiting. You know, the way that God speaks to us through the scriptures, I think, confounds over and over again the way we, we think based on kind of worldly wisdom, you might say. And this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary is no exception. I think, it, and it's caused me to say over this week, ah, yes, right. God works in ways that just confound our categories. God himself, after all, chooses to enter the human story as a vulnerable baby to a family living in poverty. He would acknowledge and work with and through the least likely in his world. So maybe I should be expecting to be surprised by what he's up to around me. So now if if your sighs are those of frustration because you're waiting or there's an uncertainty in your life, my question is this, will you allow God to speak in and through that situation about his grace? I have a friend who recently broke his ankle in three places and and he's used to being active and and like, you know, giving so much to his family and now he's just laying there on the couch and I was texting with him this week just asking how he was doing and he gave me permission to quote him. This is from his text. He says, I've definitely been having a different Advent experience. Convalescing, like waiting for healing recovering after surgery, waiting for healing and being thoroughly dependent on my family has deepened my sense of expecting the coming of Christ. Think about that. Advent is, after all, entering into a time of waiting, of watching and and hoping. Now, the first Advent was all about God's people who were straining in anticipation for the Messiah to come the first time. And now we 
continue to wait for Jesus to come again, to finally and fully bring about the healing and renewal that he promised to be perfectly present with us. Is your heart hungry for that this Christmas? Paul says this in Romans 8. He says that creation groans. It's like a sigh of longing. And, and, and creation itself is longing and awaiting God's healing of the world that he one day promises to bring to his good creation that is now marred and broken. Let's just compare that, that groaning out of longing. That's what creation pictures for us with what's typical of kind of your, you know, your Christmas expectations. You know, somehow we might have been duped into dreaming about the perfect Christmas. And, and it's maybe a picture of a family around a table with turkey and gifts and laughter. And, and there is something beautiful about that. I'm not critiquing that idea to the extent that it's pointing forward to a world healed. But the Christian celebration of Advent also is to be a time of longing. You want to get in the Christmas spirit? Ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. Ask God to show you how desperately the world is in need of repair. End up in the hospital. That would be a good way to get in the Christmas spirit. And I'm not even kidding. I'm I'm not kidding. Advent is in reality, I'm coming to learn, only really meaningful for those who know that the world is broken and needy and who know themselves to be broken and needy. Like, why long for something that you think you already have? Advent, after all, is about God breaking into the world that is desperately in need of his healing. That's why joy is exactly the right word to drop into the midst of Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth because God has started that healing with the coming of Jesus. But... It's not done yet. We live in the tension between God's kingdom come in Jesus and it being finally and fully inaugurated. It's been ushered in, but it's not fully consummated. It's not here yet. And so we live in this tension. As I, as I was writing this on Thursday of last week, I was sitting in a cafe um, at the library on the corner of Victoria and Fifth. And in the course of about 10 minutes, I just, I remember looking out and seeing vomit in the um, flower box in front of me. Uh, a woman try to sell herself to a man and then a young lady walk by with the contents of all of her life in her backpack, including what she was going to sleep in that night. And it just again hit me, this is a world in need of repair. There is so much that's broken. My heart also, I realized in that moment, still needs the fullness of that healing too. I need to be repaired. So what am I longing for this Christmas? Man, I pray that it would be more than just to be cozy. I want a heart that yearns for the the repair that only God can bring about, that yearns for the return of Jesus. Uh, Pastor and scholar Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes from a Nazi prison cell, awaiting an uncertain future, which eventually ends in his execution. He writes this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, that's not a bad picture of Advent. And it's not. It's not a bad picture at all. Are you expectant like that? Waiting. Knowing that the door can only be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent because that is what God is doing in the first Christmas, that he is coming and blowing that door open. And God is coming again to bring about the fullness of his new creation. That's what I want my heart be longing for this Christmas. The next thing we need to see, and we do have time for this, is how 
the coming of Jesus already pictures that new creation as well. This includes a radical reshaping of social structures. You see, in ancient societies, there were very strict social codes, even about how greetings would work. But this text, it begins to rearrange the expectations of the readers. See, Elizabeth is the elder. So you would expect, it makes social sense that Mary greets her. Remember that emphasis on greeting? So Mary greets her. Why? It's kind of a sense of like, you are the elder. I'm here to greet you. And she does. But then the, the response of, Mary, of Elizabeth, pardon me, it breaks out of those social norms in a stunning way. Filled with the Holy Spirit, she exclaims, as we read in a loud voice, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you bear. And then she says again, blessed is the one who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, from our cultural perspective, that might not sound very shocking. Um, why? Well, because under the influence of the gospel for many, you know, for a long, long time, we've come to believe the teaching of Jesus, that children have value. That's not how they were taught to think in the ancient world. That's not generally how uh, the ancient Greco-Roman thought. They didn't value children. But under the influence of Jesus' teaching, we've come to view that. So it's not that shocking to us that you'd have a younger being blessed by an elder. Also, I guess there's the influence of Hollywood where um, those who are young and good-looking are those you know, who would tend to be celebrated and almost maybe expect to receive highest honors in our culture. But that's not how the ancient culture worked. Mary would have been expected to honor Elizabeth, but in this greeting, Elizabeth is bending over in her praise of Mary and her faith. And this is extraordinary in that cultural setting. So you see, the coming of this little king is already upsetting social convention. And it's hinting at the sort of king that Jesus would really be. And the kind of, the kind of king, uh, what this king would do, pardon me. We'll see that later in Jesus' life, he says things like this. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he says that to be the shape of how his followers would live. Ah, remember Mary's response? I am what? The Lord's servant. Jesus says what? He says, I'm your servant. And if you want to follow me, then that's going to be your response to every other person you come in contact with. I am your servant. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Talk about upsetting social norms. Jesus, the night that he's, be, uh, the week that he's going to go to his death, he's having dinner with his disciples. He takes off his robe, ties it around his waist like a slave would do, gets on his knees and begins to wash his disciples' feet. What is going on here? There is no record in the ancient world of any inferior washing the feet of, pardon me, any superior washing the feet of their inferior. This is the only text in antiquity that says anything like that. And it is God himself who's doing it. And then he says, you want to love people? You want to follow me? That's what it's going to look like for you as well. Jesus is completely transforming expectations of what our life in the world of following him would look like as well. It's using whatever we have, whatever gifts, talents, resources, even as we saw our own brokenness, our own story of pain, using all of that in service to those around us. It's going down. And the way Elizabeth praises Mary, it hints at this great reversal. It's not lost on Mary either, 
What does Mary do with all of this? Well, she breaks into a song, a song of praise. It's often called the Magnificent. She says this, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Is that arrogance on Mary's part? You ever thought that? Wow, Mary, you know, just going to sing it out there. Everyone's going to call me blessed from here on out. I don't think it is. For remember what follows. The mighty one has done this. This is God's work. Blessed be his name. This elevating of Mary from a humble state, and she knows it is, that's a God work. And God is praised for this great work of the great reversal. God is reshaping expectations of what it means to be blessed as well. Or maybe bringing us back to what it really means to be blessed, as we read in Psalm chapter 1. Those who are truly happy, the psalmist says, are those who listen attentively for God's word, like Mary did, and then say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. That's the one who's blessed. The rest of Mary's song of praise goes on to beautifully picture this reversal and who really experiences God's blessing. Look at verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And that's what Jesus' ministry, as we see in the rest of Luke's gospel, really lays out for us if we're going to pay attention to it. So what are you experiencing? What sort of sigh do you have in this season? For Mary, her sigh is desperately mixed. Yes, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit is overjoyed. And then just eight days later, uh, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they go to the temple with this tiny newborn baby. And Simeon, we read that he's righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he takes this frail little child in his arm and begins to praise God, saying this, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you might now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He looks into the face of this newborn baby and is able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation because they've seen him. And we read that Mary and Joseph marveled at what, was said, at what was said about Jesus. But then notice this. Well, Simeon's not done. The final words that he leaves this young couple with, he looks into the eyes of this new mom with her beautiful little baby boy in her arms, and he says something chilling. And a sword will pierce your soul too. Wow, Merry Christmas, Mary. Um, the soul we read that magnifies the Lord will experience the deepest cut possible. The sigh of relief, ah, oh, that God is finally doing what he promised will turn into a sigh of the most crushing loss as this mother loses her son in this horrible, shame-filled, pain-filled death. The band Mumford and Sons, they have a song called Sigh No More. It speaks both of human brokenness, but then it points 
to a love that all of us are longing for that can actually transform our hearts. The chorus says this, love that will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you. It'll set you free. The beauty of love as it was made to be, sigh no more, no more. This sigh no more can actually be ours, as it was for Mary, a result of the greatest unexpected element of all. Yes, Jesus exhales as he breathes his last, this sigh of death he breathes out. But on the third day, the grave opens its mouth in the greatest sigh of victory the world has ever seen, and Jesus walks out of the grave. See, God uses death to break death itself, to remove the sting of death. Talk about swamping our categories. From Mary's sigh of deepest grief will be transformed three days later to the sigh of greatest relief once again. And yours can be too. In a Time article published this past week, biblical scholar N.T. Wright, who's addressing some of the misconceptions about what the Bible actually teaches about heaven, and it really connects to what Mary's song of praise says here. He connects the dots to what the inbreaking kingdom means for how we live in the present. He writes this, The scriptures always promise that when the life of heaven came to earth through the work of Israel's Messiah, the weak and vulnerable would receive special care and protection, and the desert would blossom like the rose. You know, in Mary's song, she, she says that God brings low those who are proud and arrogant in heart, but lifts up the poor. Of the hungry, he speaks of those being filled who are hungry now, but the rich in the present, meaning those who are hoarding for themselves, the greedy, the self-centered, they'll be sent away empty-handed. Over and over again, Luke's gospel shows us that Jesus is the one who invites and hosts and heals the most unexpected people. Jesus calls Levi a tax collector, says, come follow me. Be one of mine. Be a part of my mission. Jesus celebrates and honors a woman who is of questionable character, who begins to wipe his feet with her tears and her hair. And then he sends her away with these words of blessing, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Like you've put your faith in the right place to trust in me. And Jesus tells of a Pharisee who's boasting in his prayers to God of how he's not like other people, of his goodness. And then he tells us of a tax collector who's beating his breast. He won't even look up to heaven. And Jesus says, who leaves their time of prayer in right relationship with God? Jesus says it's the one who knows he's actually unworthy of God's grace. That's the one who receives it. So to go back to Wright's words in that time article, the scriptures always promise that when the life of heaven comes to earth through the work of Israel's Messiah, the weak and vulnerable would receive special care and protection. The desert would bloom like a rose. Then he concludes with what this means for us in the present. As we still await the advent of our King Jesus, that we would be about the same kind of love and protection and care that we see presented in Luke's gospel all throughout. He finishes this way, care for the poor and the planet then becomes central, not peripheral, for those who intend to live in faith and hope by the Spirit between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming renewal of all things. How do we live in the tension between the two? I think we live like Mary does. She sings this, his mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. Now, she's talking about the exodus from Egypt, how God frees Israel from her slavery to the Egyptians 
in this powerful way. But God will indeed perform a mighty deed with his arms that Mary doesn't even quite understand yet. He will continue to give us the greatest freedom possible. He will outstretch his arms in an embrace of love as they are nailed to the cross. And the sigh of death, as we found it, is overcome because of love for you, because he's raised again. Is that where you're banking your hope this Christmas? Let's pray as the team comes. Lord God, I thank you that you work in unexpected ways. God, there's things that we expect about who's truly blessed in the world, and then you overturn those categories entirely. And we're so glad you do, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would be shaping and and molding us into a people who live out that pattern of expecting the God of the unexpected. Uh, And Lord, we, we ask that you would make us a people who give that special care and protection to those who are weak and vulnerable in our world that we would get on board with what Mary's song so boldly proclaims and celebrates about you. We thank you, Jesus, that you meet us in our weakness and our need, and through that, you show your power. We love you, God, and we ask that you just be preparing our hearts uh, to desperately want for your kingdom to come and your will be to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.